What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 63 of Dart Against Humanity. The weather has dipped. Um, the temperature has dropped to almost freezing levels. Right now, it's at 38. Uh, it, it was 32 uh, a couple nights ago when I went out, went to the store. Had to, like, bundle up. Had the scully on. Had to get a new hoodie. Visited my um boy Sean at the uh, Fort Boston store. There was a ten percent chance of snow, and I happened to see my first snow of the winter, two thousand nineteen, two thousand twenty. It was quite hilarious, and it just hammered home that it is officially winter, and winter is coming. Now, with that being said. Today is also November 15th, 2019, which means 25 years ago today, uh, Method Man's Tikal was released by Def Jam. Now, here's what's crazy. Uh, Method Man's album was the first of the Wu solo records to be released, which started an epic run of RZA-produced albums. All classics. That first wave. Uh, what's even more interesting is that uh, his album would have sounded much different had the flood. Well, this is the case for uh, several albums. Had the flood never happened in um, RZA's studio. While this album did extremely well for Def Jam. Sold quick. Uh resulted in big hit singles. I believe um Method Man even won a Grammy for um the biggest single off this album, especially the remix. Um there's the joint that he did with Mary J. Blige. All I need the remix, the remix video, this is the one that really, really blew up the album and like made it go platinum as opposed to just gold. It went gold it went gold fairly quickly. But moreover than its success and all the other stuff, to me, this was one of the uh landmark quintessential winter albums of the uh early to mid 90s I think the quintessential winter album of the 90s of course is uh, Cypress Hill Cypress Hill but this album is a landmark of course for being the first album of the um the, the solo Wu joints but also because this one marked the first release from uh, Def Jam's Month of the Man campaign for 1994. November 15th, they released uh, Method Man's Tikal. November 22nd was Red Man's Dare is a Dark Side. There aren't a whole lot of people that remember the Month of the Man and that rollout that Def Jam executed that right in this space right now. They just don't. When the Month of the Man happened, 25 years ago, I was 19. 
I just have to tell you, I don't I couldn't tell you how many people who are still in this space who still write, who haven't moved on to do other endeavors that actually, you know, are on somebody's retainer and actually get paid by these sites to write about this music that are my age who were 19 when this campaign happened and can write about it the way I could. I, of course, haven't because I've been doing other things. And quite frankly, the rate that they would be paying me to write about it when I got other shit going on, it ain't even worth it. Like, that's couch cushion, couch, couch cushion money. It is. I'm not going to lie. Now, let's talk about the cow itself. When the album came out in 1994, my brother and I would have bought the cassette tape. Not the CD, got CD later. I would have bought the cassette tape. That changes everything. Because to Cal, it was like, it was less than 45 minutes, I believe. And it was, you know, side A and side B. So side A was, opens with to Cal, to Cal, to Cal. Um, then goes the Biscuits. Then bring the pain. All I need. The original All I Need. Not the version that blew up later. Then what the blood clot. Meth vs. Chef with Raekwon. Him going them going back and forth talking about who who set it off for the woo better. Because you know, Chef had the single um Can It All Be So Simple with uh Ghostface. And, you know, like his verses were the ones that like really blew up, blew it up. That's his argument. But Meth is like, yo, who sparked that shit? Or was I the chinky eye Chiba Hawk from New York? Like he's saying that my shit Method Man is what really blew up the clan. So that whole Meth versus Chef back and forth thing is interesting. I remember being at Morgan State University uh, in 1996. It's winter. We're snowed in because I showed up in Morgan State again, January 1996, and a lot of people were snowed in. There was nowhere to go. And cats would come to the dorm, come to the dorm. Classes weren't going to start for a while because they would push back. So we had nowhere to go and nothing to do but stay in the dorm and just learn about each other. So we would be in the lobby because nobody really had like everything set up. Few people actually lived there before I had their cable and everything set up. But for the most part, if you didn't have any of the amenities or anything like that, you weren't settled into your spot yet. You didn't even have your new, your roommate wasn't hadn't come into town yet. Everybody was in the lobby where they had the big TV for, for then the big TV with cable. So we were watching all the basketball games, all the football games, any of the TV shows like community. And one of the things we did was we discussed rap because what's a bunch of Negroes from all over the country going to do? And um, we discussed, among many albums, this one. And there was this big debate raging over what Meth vs. Chef, what they were actually saying in Meth vs. Chef. And that's how I know these things because we were going back and forth, like breaking down the bars in Meth vs. Chef, like what they were actually talking about is it was really interesting, man. Then Sub Crazy again closes out the um the first side. So it's uh seven songs on the first side, six songs on the second side. Uh side B opens up with um Release Your Delph, 
Then we got PLO style. Uh, I get my thing in action. Mr. Sandman stimulation Method Man remix. Now, Method Man has gone on record as saying that he believed that his album was the weakest of the first wave of Wu Tang class um Wu Tang album um Wu Tang Clan uh, releases, even though it's a classic. Which I guess he's right, but this album is a quintessential winter album. I listen to joints like um like Earl's Doris, you know, and his like other stuff, even though I will say that my least favorite Earl release is the last joint he just put out. That's like my least favorite Earl project ever. But like when you if it's cold weather, if it's raining out, if it's snowing, this album puts you in the perfect mindset. And I think some people kind of complained because they wanted some more upbeat stuff. They wanted more, but it was really brooding. It, it, it was like really like the vibe of it was dark and sinister. And that was lent a lot to the fact that some of the original tr tracks that were that were um created couldn't be used. So, you know, they had to kind of rework the album, but it worked out. And this album aesthetically from top to bottom is fire even though like the big singles are what blew it up as a body of work i love this album from top to bottom i don't think that there's a thing on here that's like yo this is the joint that like blows everything else out the water bring the pain works with what the blood clot with a sub crazy a stimulation i get my thing in action mr sandman is the posse track um Sub Crazy, I think, is one of the most underrated joints. Um, the Method Man remix is dope. That later Release Your Delph remix that kind of blew up in the UK is another thing that um kind of like gave this album a whole nother life. But when you factor in the month of the man and how the next week Red Man drops another dark album on top of that. And then when it gets, then when we pass Thanksgiving, and then when it starts snowing, we get to Christmas, and then we're past like the first of the year, New Year's, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and then we get into February, that's when this shit really gets popping. However, in the life of this album, what really blew this album up again, I mentioned, is um, All I Need. The, the Mary J. Blige remix, which comes out after the thaw happens. So now we're getting into the spring and that gives this album a whole new life. And I feel like with the success of that song, that kind of uh, obscured that feeling about this album. Also, another factor. Method Man's appeal. Now, of course, when like the Wu first came out, you have the single, which I posted on um one of the original, not the original, the OG of the like one that got that sold 10,000 copies before Loud released it. But I have like one of the original joints that came out May 1993 released by Loud that I put on Instagram along with the uh, the promo VHS tape that Loud put Loud RCA put out. Um, Method Man's appeal, which I didn't 
I was completely oblivious to was that women thought he was hot. I ain't catch that at all. I have no fucking clue. So when Method Man started like blowing up, I was like, yo, you know what I'm saying? That song's really dope. I'm glad. It's like, it's nice that like girls, girls appreciate that again. I'm in high school. I'm like, it's, it's, it's nice that girls like caught, catch on to this. Like they really like the song. Dumbass. I don't catch that they think he, they, 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 they think he fine. Until what happens is I think there's a picture of him in a magazine and these girls start squealing. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, are they squealing? I was like, who are they squealing? Like, who, like who's in this magazine? Like, this ain't the Alaye calendar. And I look over, and it's Method Man. I'm like, what? Why does they, they, they think Method, Method Man is? Really? And I just think that it's an isolated incident. I'm like, oh, these girls just really think Method Man is cute. Fast forward to there's an episode of Rap City. And it's Big Les, and she's in Def Jam's um at, at Def Jam's offices, and she's talking to, and Def Jam had the most beautiful women working there. I should have it should have been a red flag. Understood something about Russell Simmons. I just figured that Russell Simmons recognized that women, you know, were the right people to hire because they seem to have their ear to the street, and they seem to understand what moved. And who was going to sell and who had, you know, appeal. So if you want to win, I mean, anybody knew this. If you growing up, anybody knew this. If the girls liked it, if they responded to it, that's where you went. If they loved Heavy D and the boys, you better fuck with Heavy D and the boys. They like Guy, you better fuck with Guy. They like Jodeci. You fucking with Jodeci. Um, they, if the song comes on and makes them want to dance, that's what we're going to do. That's just common sense for anybody who grew up in the industry or, or the business. So you hire these women because they know. They know what's going on at the club. They know, you know, what styles are popping, what person is appealing to a wide swa- a wide audience. That being said. Um, Big Les is at Def Jam and she's there with like Tracy Waples and like all these other women that like a noted um, homegirl who uh, have plenty is about who I believe actually accused Russell Simmons of like harassment and and sexual assault and something to that effect, I think. Um, But all of these women that worked at Def Jam. And she's talking to them. He's like, oh, and Method Man's here. And she's like, oh, girl, Method Man? Yeah, girl, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, girl. Mm-hmm. He's so fine. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, light bulb goes off. Oh, it's not just the girls at school. He got signed to Def Jam because of this. Partly because of this. Like, it's part of his appeal. And the other thing was that I found out later, which made sense to me, that Method Man will go out his way to try to make to try to play this down. You know, he'd put in the contacts or he'll he'll do something and he'll have the fangs in. Uh, he'll wear his wear certain like a mix of clothes. He'll have the receiver's gloves with this on. But what ends up happening, the blunt under the under the uh under the under the like the headband or what have you but 
he would try to like roll up an eyelid or some shit. But what would end up happening is that would not <laughs> take away or detract from his sex symbol status. And this, again, I didn't realize was a factor because, again, I'm a dude and I'm just going by the music. But again, in the music industry, all of this is a factor, which is why when um, Ghostface Killer finally shows his face and it can it all be so simple, that changed everything. Because Ghostface Killer's appeal went from just being his lyrics and his bars to, oh, wait, there's a new way to market this guy now. So Ghostface went from just being Ghostface Killer, you know, the dude with the with the murderous with the murderous verses to we can sell and market this dude as, uh, you know, a, a sex symbol and appeal to the ladies. Even if he does these grimy ass joints. So like RZA was really relishing this and his position is the abbot of the Wu-Tang Clan because he's like, I have more leverage in terms of what I can do with my groups. And Method Man was the guy who set it off and was the first um, viable guy to be you know we want this dude even though there are several artists like Dante Ross wanted um old dirty bastard you know and he ended up got getting him signed to Electra Method Man signed with Def Jam you know Tracy Waples and and um some other women at Def Jam were like yo we need to get him get him get him um you know, uh, Jizza ended up signing his deal and he did well for himself. And then it was just a matter of like, where else is everybody else going? But Method Man again set everything off by having the successful album out the gate. The Bring the Pain, you know, it did what it did. Uh, release your Delph, you know, it did what it did. It wasn't a huge single, but you know, it, it did enough to like have the album keep moving. But then all I need blows up, goes crazy. It enters the rotation on MTV, the videos everywhere, the songs everywhere. It crosses over. It ends up in commercials. Wins awards. And there we go. We're off to the races. Now, when you think about Method Man's to Cal, right? And where it, where it existed in 1994. Like the week before is the week that uh, Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth released the main ingredient, you know? So when you think about what was going on at the time, it's crazy because there were so many excellent albums that were out at the time. I believe um, Artifacts, uh, Between a Rock and a Hard Place was out already at that time. 
there was just a gang of albums that I remember like having and like going and hanging out with people and like hearing in their cars or in their Walkmans, stuff like that. Like what was out around then? Um, Common had dropped Resurrection. Diggable Planets had Blowout Comb. OC's Word Life. Um, Keith Murray's Most Beautifulest Thing in This World was out. Um, damn, what else was out? I already said Artifacts. Um, Brand Nubian. Brand Nubian, Everything is Everything. And I'm trying to remember because I have tapes and then the CDs. Tapes and the CDs. And occasionally we would get the CDs. And we were getting promos too. So what else was out? Um, what else were we listening to around then? I remember people were listening to um, the Murder Was a Case soundtrack was out. Thug Life was out at the same time too. Um, what the hell else was out? Um, I mean, if it's nineteen ninety four, that means that we're coming off of um. Biggie, Ready to Die, which, again, Biggie's Ready to Die came out and then, like, really started to blow up right around Thanksgiving and after Thanksgiving and then, like, into Christmas. And I think around that time into Christmas, I mentioned this on a um, previous episode, that that's when the One More Chance remix came out and that gave that album more life. So as soon as it got cold, again, as I'm talking about like cold weather albums, Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die, of course, is one of those other great cold weather albums. And it's, 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 it's especially crazy when um, great cold weather albums come out right when the weather's changing, as opposed to like with Cypress Hill, it came out in the summer and it took until... It started getting cold for it to really catch on. And how could I just kill a man? Um, what else was out? Stress, the extension agenda came out that summer. But it's funny because in the video for stress, they're in snow. Grave Diggers Six Feet Deep came out that summer. But it had a whole new life when it got cold. So it's crazy when you think about that. Um and then, of course, next week, I'm going to talk about um, Red Man's Dare is a Dark Side, which to me is one of the all time great Red Man albums. But of course, Red Man doesn't really enjoy that record for reasons that I'll get into fully next week. Now, what's funny about me talking about the Wu-Tang Clan and uh, <laughs> uh, Method Man, and his album is that. One of the things that happened recently, which always happens with Twitter, is that there was a discussion on Twitter about um, the most iconic logo in hip-hop history. Now, being that I'm a historian, and the words, words mean different things to me, I had a different take than most other people. The consensus... Which makes sense. The consensus is that the most iconic logo in hip hop history, I stress that, was the Wu-Tang logo because of its reach, because you can find it tattooed on people, because it can be changed and switched and altered to fit um, any Wu affiliate. 
And because it's on so many products and it's so diverse because, you know, there was Wu Wear and the Wu Tang store. And then there was the um the branding deal that Wu Tang did not too long ago with that um with that company. So there was just like Wu everything everywhere. And you know, it's international, it's worldwide. And I was like, yeah, it absolutely is. It's very prominent now. It's easily the most recognizable one now. It's the one that sticks with people's memories now. Because, you know, there was the documentary. Wu-Tang of Mike's and Men. And then there's the Hulu show about the Wu-Tang Clan. And there have been Wu-Tang games. There have been Wu-Tang comic books. The Nine Rings of the Wu-Tang. You know? And the Wu have been in several documentaries. You know, there was the one with the dude, um, Chang Wiseman. Uh, with his, uh... Damn, I can't remember what the name of his, uh... His concert series was. But, like, there was a documentary. The one where it's like, it was the last... The last thing that uh, old dirty bastard showed up to, you know what I'm saying? It's like there's a whole bunch of things. They were in um. They were in um the uh damn is it really no 1995 would be when it comes up uh the show, Wu Tang Clan's has a prominent spot in the show, the entire clan. It's a Def Jam documentary, but the entire clan. You know it's crazy. They weren't even on the label. Look at the answers that you give. And again, the other person that was big and prominent on that shit was, you know, Notorious B.I.G. Nas wasn't even in it because Nas hadn't blown. And Nas was on Columbia. Go figure. But the point I'm making is that the Wu-Tang logo to this generation, to this era, is far more prominent. Therefore, they think it's the most iconic, not realizing what the word iconic means and what that entails. So I say, no, the Wu-Tang logo is very is extremely prominent now. And yes, for now, it seems that way. But in actuality, the most iconic, knowing the definition of the word logo in hip hop history, which is also something that you have to stress, hip hop history has to be either the Def Jam logo, which is international and global and was a a brand and a stamp of authenticity and a stamp of quality to the point where if people saw the Def Jam logo, they bought whatever was on the Def Jam logo. The Def Jam logo was on just because it had a Def Jam logo on it. And when hip hop first went overseas and international between 83, 84, with the first, you know, New York rap and like, you know, what they called the kitchen show because of the, the, the club, the kitchen and everybody who was pretty much in there was hey, we're going to round you up and we're going to go overseas. We're going to go to the UK. We're going to go to Europe. We're going to go to uh, Japan. With this entire show, and it was also around the time that Style Wars and Wild Style had come out between 83 and 84, and then later Beat Street and Breaking came out in 84, but like the thing was that this is when Def Jam first made a stamp. Def Jam made a stamp with, you know, it's yours, 
They made their stamp because they were the people actually behind Run DMC blowing up in 84. Def Jam was really the people behind the Fresh Fest, even though everybody on the tour wasn't on Def Jam. They were on Rush. But Rush was, again, a Def Jam thing. So Run DMC starts touring and blowing up. And Run DMC is pretty much headlining Def Jam tours because they're Rush tours. So the Def Jam logo and Run DMC become synonymous and pretty much one and the same. And they are the official brands of hip hop culture going globally. When those rap tours go to the UK, when they go to Japan, when they go to Europe. And you have to remember that there was a time when we had something called the Cold War. When... <laughs> There was a division and there were certain things that weren't allowed for people to have in what was the USSR, Soviet bloc, East Germany. If you had something that was American like blue jeans or certain things that they didn't allow there in a communist country, they were considered contraband. One of the things that they had there that were contraband were rock t-shirts and 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 merch from music bands. When rap groups were finally allowed to go over and perform in Russia freely and in certain parts of the USSR and the Soviet bloc and in East Germany when the wall was down, what they discovered was a lot of those people had Def Jam t-shirts which would have been contraband. Because they were not available to sell there. And that doesn't explain to you the reach of the Def Jam logo, then nothing will. Also, if you have to factor in the fact that um, Def Jam UK and Def Jam Japan exist. And they've been around for a while. They didn't just pop up recently. And I was going back and forth with people that were like, you're wrong, you're wrong. When's the last time you've seen a Def Jam logo? I was like, it's not about the last time I've seen a, a, a Def Jam logo tattoo. I was like, it's not about the last time I've seen a Def Jam logo tattoo. It's about the fact that I was seeing them in 1986, 1987, and 1988 on people. Do I see them now? Absolutely not. Why would you have a Def Jam logo? It doesn't make sense. Now, when's the last time you saw a Run DMC logo? The last time I saw one? 1990, in line when I was buying uh, Run DMC's Back From Hell, it was a white guy. Have I seen Run DMC logos on people? Yes. Have I seen Adidas tattoos on people? Yes. I live in Boston. That's not hard. If I find enough people past a certain age who are still alive in Lower Roxbury, South End, and Dorchester, I'm going to find some Adidas tattoos. I'm going to find some Run DMC tattoos. They were synonymous with the fucking brand. And they all were synonymous with, with Def Jam. And another iconic logo, I, my argument was, was um, Public Enemy's logo. Public Enemy's logo was extremely iconic. What was the reach of Public Enemy's logo? Um, to the point where rock fans and white kids even wore Public Enemy t-shirts. How? What was the height of it? 1991, there's a blockbuster film 
called Terminator 2 Judgment Day. In it, the main character who plays the man who's going to grow up and be the savior of humanity against the war against the machines, John Connor, teenage John Connor, who is already a hacker, is wearing a public enemy fucking t-shirt. I can't tell you how many hard rock kids who loved Aerosmith and Metallica and Guns N' Roses or Porno for Pyros or fucking Jane's Addiction or, or fucking Megadeth, Metallica, a band, band, insert band name here, Anthrax. fucking loved Public Enemy and had Public Enemy t-shirts. And another thing I have to stress is that this is before hip-hop fashion as we know it really blew up post like 91, 92 when it became like a big thing where it became normalized because before that it was just merch. It was just band merch. And band merch as we knew it wasn't super popular. And also tattoos were not as normalized back then as they are now. The culture was completely different. So if you see multiple people with logos tattooed on them back in those days, it counts for triple than it being widely normalized now. And these are the type of things and the type of nuance that you can't get across to people who didn't live a certain time and can't have conversations like this and aren't historians on real time social media. And it's unfortunate. But, hey, that's that's what I have to deal with. So a lot of people were like, eh, you can't admit you're wrong. Da, da, da. No, I actually know what I'm talking about. And me sticking to my guns when I actually know what I'm talking about and I'm right and I'm using facts and bringing up history and I'm bringing up a timeline because it's important to what I do. Eh. I could deal with people saying you just can't you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, because I know for a fact that I'm dealing with people that don't understand the full scope of what I'm talking about in terms of the word iconic. Because here's another thing that happens. Um in in the era of real-time social media and what happens with language now is that words their meanings get diluted. Words like legendary or legend don't mean what they did 15, 20 years ago. Words like iconic don't mean what they meant 15, 20 years ago. Words like exclusive don't even mean what they meant 15, 20 years ago. The word mixtape doesn't even mean what the fuck it used to mean 10 years ago. And these are one of the, these, this is one of the things that somebody who writes for a living, who's a historian, who deals with language, who's been studying English and the changing language going back to the days of old English, understands. And you can't have these type of nuanced discussions with everybody because everybody ain't thinking on that level and everybody's considering history because they don't have to. I have to. I do it for a living. And here I am ranting into a fucking iPhone. Now, 
What I also want to talk about is that one of the funny things I talked about last week was that there isn't a lot of research really done. People just run with whatever information. So yesterday, a lot of people were saying, which I kind of predicted was going to happen, were saying that uh, yesterday was the 30th anniversary of um, Third Base's The Cactus album being released. And it's funny because on the 10th, none other than Pete Nice himself was like, yeah, today's the 30th anniversary of my album being released, of our album being released, uh, the Cactus album. And it was like, check, check with Dart Adams. And I'm like, yep, it was released Friday, November 10th, 1989. It didn't crack the charts until December, you know, December 2nd, December 2nd. And it was the 150th on the, um, the Billboard 200, and then the next week it entered uh, December 9th, you know, on the black music charts. Same thing happened with the Beastie Boys, where it's like, hey, they're white rappers and we don't know if they belong in the black music charts or not. Take it away, Dart. So that was really interesting. And of course, last week I broke down the whole like confusion about, you know, <laughs> the Queen Latifah album uh all hail the queen and when it actually came out versus when it says it came out the 28th when it actually debuted on the billboard um hot black albums charts on the 25th now here's what's crazy too next sunday or sunday next sunday the last episode of the first season of um quest love and black thoughts amazing series uh hip hop the songs that shook america is queen latifah and moni loves ladies first and i don't know if they timed that just right because it's going to be damn near 30 years to when that single was released 30 years so i was 14 14 when ladies first came out dance for me came out just as i turned 14 i came out august like august 1999 like that song was so fucking fire that album was amazing and what's crazy is that um I would have written about a lot of these things if it wasn't for the fact that I'm doing other stuff. And it's funny because I can't even really get into detail about exactly what I'm writing, but just say that it's going to be worth it and it's worth it, going to be worth it for me and my life and going forward and changing it and shit like that. But I wanted to write about, you know, certain albums. But the thing is that they didn't do well commercially. When you think about rap, you're going to hear that. That's me. Fucking, that's my beard. Um, you, when you think about classic rap albums, and I don't know how many of you really understand this. How many classic rap albums, uh, albums that I will say were seminal classics, didn't sell well? I think that pretty much damn near most of the albums I talked about last week from 1989 didn't, didn't sell well. I'm pretty sure that um, Jungle Brothers, 
uh, done by the forces of nature didn't smell gold. I know for a fact Queen Latifah, um, Queen Latifah's all hail the queen sure as hell didn't go gold. I know for a fact that uh, um, Bad Sister by Roxanne Shantae didn't come close to smelling gold. I know that in this corner, which was the worst album of all of them, sold, but it still flopped because the last album came out double platinum and had a gang of singles. And um, I think I think it could beat Mike Tyson was like went gold, but like that song was even trash. Like that was easily. Uh, I think that LL Cool J. And Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince's, those albums that came out in 1989 were a result of them being so up off the success of their last album that they kind of felt like they could do anything. We could do anything. We're invincible. We got the Super Mario Brothers star, you know, star. We're invincible. We could do whatever. And when them joints came out, people were like, nah. Nope, we're not fucking with it. Matter of fact, I I think I talked about this. There's an article that I found where, or did I just record the video and and, and um delete it because I didn't think anybody cared. I found an article in Billboard talking about how LL Cool J showed up to an event and everybody booed him in 1989, and his album had like just gone platinum. And people were just booing this man. Can you imagine that? Because things, the levels are different. And also, one of the other things about like doing research in this space is really hard. If I want to find out what was going on with like um, Chill Rob G's album, Ride the Rhythm... It's super hard to find a release date because I can see some ads in like a billboard or a old source, but none of them really mention the release date solid. And if I and if I go look at billboard to try to find any indication of this fucking album, it's not there. Just the same, the same thing happened with Gangstar. Gangstar's album didn't sell enough to show up in Billboard until after Jazz Thing came out. And then people went back and started buying the album. No more Mr. Nice Guy. To the point where nobody knows when albums dropped. And I mentioned this in a previous episode. The March 11th, 1989 issue of Billboard there's an ad for No More Mr. Nice Guy right there. You know? But they say the album came out in the summer. I'm like, no, it was already out. It had been out for months. Matter of fact, the reason people think the album came out in the summer is because that's when the single manifest, that's when the single manifest drops and it's on your own TV raps and then there's another ad for that single. And I'm like, people, you have to do all this fucking research. You have to really put in all this work and all this labor, which may not be worth it when it comes down to like how much the rate is that you'll get paid for it. 
that being the case, man, um, if you're someone who wasn't around and wasn't of age when uh, the album dropped initially, then I got to tell you, um, you should really go back um, and like listen to it or not go back because this is when you will actually be listening to it. Again, the album is under 45 minutes. 13 songs. Um, everybody, you might know Bring the Pain video on the bus. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, it's pretty much just a, a Risen Fourth Disciple album. You got the slow plotting, sinister, almost dirges that like you hear. But like, you think about this album and how differently this album would have turned out had there not been the flood in RZA's studio versus the album that actually was made. Or think about this. This is another key thing that I haven't mentioned yet. I feel like Method Man was running away from this album and always wanted to make another album that people regarded higher than this one or like one that he was more proud of. And I think that that kind of really fucked up his future albums. Like the Cal 2000 Judgment Day, I think was a pretty good album, but he always wanted to make an album like better, better, better. And he always seemed to like fall short to Cal Zero, the prequel, which was god awful, like god awful. Quite literally, I think the only song I really, really liked on that album was probably like the show. And it was like the short joint that he did. And they like did a video for it. I was like the flow on that one, his approach to that shit was fire. Cause he like he was like at Daddy's house, fucking with uh, Puffy and stuff like that to try to make the album, and he had a whole bunch of people on the record. It didn't make sense. It was just all over the place. It's two thousand four album to Cal Zero, and then like four twenty one the day after. It was okay. It was okay. But the thing is, who remembers that fucking album? Nobody. Nobody remembers that album. So it's always felt like he was trying to chase something. He had another album after that. Did he? He had albums after that. The Meth Lab. I don't remember any of them shits. I'm sorry. But I always felt that Red Man was trying to... Uh, Red Man. I always felt that Method Man was trying to chase something. He was trying to create a new chamber, do something different with that album. Like he was trying to like make the album that makes everybody forget about Takao. But what ends up happening is it just makes everybody remember Takao more. And also, I think I'm kind of far removed because I don't 100% know how everyone else feels about Takao. I don't know if everybody feels about Takao the same way I do. Because... I recognize it being the weakest, I agree with him, the weakest of the first wave of um, 
Wu-Tang classic albums, but it's still a classic. I'll put it like this. I think of the four World Series wins by the Red Sox. Okay? The 2004 one has a special place in my heart. The 2007 team's better than the 2004 team. The 2013 team's better than the 2004 team. The 2018 team is better than all the others. But I still love that 2004 team. I still love that 2004 Red Sox team with the exception of Kurt Schilling. He can eat a dick. I kind of equate that to how I feel about um, Tikal. It's the weakest of them, but I still love it. And there's a reason why I love it. Because it was the first. And even though they're better, more concise, better put together, probably better sequenced, uh, much better sounding. But for when it came out and when it happened, it was perfect and it's what it needed to be. And also, I think this because I group it with um, Redman's album, There Is A Dark Side, which came right after it in The Month of the Man. I'm going to talk about The Month of the Man more next week. And I'm going to talk about Redman's There Is A Dark Side uh, more in depth, which is an album that's like parallel to this one. Because while Redman, I felt... While Method Man, I felt like tried to make people forget about this album and 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 do better than it. I think Red Man also wanted people to forget about Dare as a Dark Side because it was dark and it was somber and he was going through bad shit in his life. And I'm going to get into that in detail next week. One.